Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we continue with A.W. Tozer and the main idea behind three important words describing inheritance in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. This morning to another great idea, a great spiritual principle that lies embodied here in the fourth verse of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, reading verses 3 and 4, maybe 5, 2. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, and that faded not away, preserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith, under salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And the last time I spoke here, I said, following Peter, that Christians are not born upward into a vacuum, and that the new birth is not an end in itself. It is a means to yet a higher end, and that Christians are born unto an inheritance. And I pointed out that that inheritance is not a present gift, such as eternal life is, it's not a future reward which comes by faithfulness and toil, but it is a legacy from the Father to his children, neither a direct present gift nor a reward earned by works, but a legacy which comes to the child by virtue of his or her relationship to the Father. Now, in today's lesson, there are three qualities that are attributed to this inheritance. It is described by three words, and these qualities which are said to inherit in our inheritance are precisely the qualities that distinguish our inheritance from any earthly thing. The things of God and heaven itself, they are not simply an upward projection of our imagination, of the very best that we have or know or can imagine in this world, upward and then touched with perpetuity, so that they are eternal. They're mostly contrary to the things of earth. And you'll find this inheritance, which we mentioned this morning, to be of a kind which distinguishes it sharply from any earthly inheritance that there may be. There are three words incorruptible, undefiled, 
and unfading. The King James says, fadeth not away, which of course is unfading. So now let us look at these three words and remember that they are inherent in the legacy which is left us. They cling to it. They are part of it. They describe it. They, they do not define it. But they are the qualities that belong to our heavenly inheritance, which we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. The first is the word incorruptible. And that, according to the Greek, means undecaying in essence and endless in years. That which cannot be corrupted then is undecaying in essence. And, I suppose only secondarily, endless in years. Now I want to ask you what a man can possess in this world that has about it the quality of incorruptibility. I want to ask you what there is on the face of this earth that you could have even if you had the power to call to yourself whatever you would want some Aladdin's lamp to rub and bring to you whatever gift you desired, I ask you what there could be on earth that can be properly or and accurately described as being incorruptible that does not decay in its essence and is endless in its years. Now our Lord said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust corrupt, and thieves break through and steal. Now these were not the words of a cynic, neither were they the words of a defeatist. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not a defeatist. Our Lord Jesus Christ never suffered, as they said Abraham Lincoln did, from glandular deficiency, and that's what made him the way he was. He pitied people, and they said that's a glandular deficiency. But our Lord Jesus Christ had so no such deficiencies. Our Lord Jesus Christ was not a defeatist. He was not a sea optimist, certainly. Neither had he any of the heavy-handed, heavy-hearted pessimism that has characterized a great many thinkers in the world. Our Lord Jesus Christ saw everything clearly. If there ever existed in the wide world a man who earned the right to be called a realist, Jesus Christ was that man. For he saw everything exactly as it was. It was all real to him. He did not shade one edge of something to bring something else into relief. He did not either in ideas nor in the words that expressed those ideas put his best foot forward. He saw everything exactly as it was and described it and spoke of it exactly as it was. He was the world's most perfect realist because he was himself truth. And so our Lord was neither dreaming of some heaven that he had never seen, Neither was he projecting his imagination upward away from the grief and miseries of this world to some lovely heaven, some mansion which was being prepared. He spoke of things as they were and as they will be found to be. And he said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. And there we have that ugly word corrupt again. And Jesus applied it 
to all trades. And he said that the moth took some of it and rust took other of it. He certainly didn't give us a complete picture, but he did say that there was corruption in the earth. And even if you did not wait for it to corrupt, a thief might easily break through and steal it. So you see the vanity, the futility of it all. What a cheat the devil is. And, and what a deceiver, what a confidence man he is. He sells poor people the Brooklyn Bridge and then grins as he takes their last dollar and goes leaves them to find out too late that the Brooklyn Bridge wasn't his to sell. He's a liar, I say, and a deceiver. And he's leading people to spend the best years of their life, laying up for themselves traitors, which, even before they die, will begin to rust and rot and decay. Incorruptible is a word that cannot be applied to any earthly thing. Nothing is there that is undecaying in its essence and endless in its years. But there is an inheritance which Jesus Christ, the realist, Jesus Christ, the heavenly one, came to give to his followers, to his believers. Now, that inheritance is incorruptible, and the word incorruptible here is exactly the same word as is used of the dead who shall rise again at the coming of Christ. We sing, or people who sing, sing, the dead shall be raised incorruptible. Remember that. The dead shall be raised incorruptible, and that's exactly the same word to describe the glorified human body as is used here to describe the inheritance of the saints. It cannot decay. It cannot corrupt. And I say that this quality that describes our heavenly inheritance is precisely the quality that distinguishes it uh, from all earthly traces. The second word is the word defiled, undefiled. Now I ask you what earthly treasure is safe from defilement. The Bible has very little kind to say about money, very little. Very little it is kind to say about the heaping up of treasure. The Bible uses the word lucre for meaning profit and then adds the, the, the disgusting adjective filthy before it and calls it filthy lucre. And the man Paul, who was not a defeatist and uh, was not compelled to rationalize his poverty, but who had given up a high position to become a Christian, he said that the love of money is a root from which all evil springs. Note he did not say that money is a root from which all evil springs. He said the love of money is a root, not the root, for there are other roots. But the love of money is a root from which all evil springs. Now everything that we have in this world is defiled and has been defiled. There is scarcely a dollar. Smell that dollar bill or that ten dollar bill. The very smell of it indicates where it's been it smells like itself. There is something that isn't altogether morally right about it. I don't mean it's morally wrong for us to own it and to use it, to give it and to use it for our families, because we keep pure by virtue of the washing of the blood of Jesus. But I mean that nothing that this earth has is quite pure. There is an element of defilement upon it all. The very lot 
whereon your house stands, that very lot once belonged to the tribes of Red Indians that roamed the deep woods in the section we call Illinois. And it's yours now, and you got it honestly, so I don't want to lay anything on your conscience. I only want to say that that once belonged to another race. And we white men came without any payment in kind and kicked them out to the western sea and put them on little lice-infested reservations and tossed them a sop from year to year to try to solve our own conscience for the guilt of having upset and invaded and cast out a race that once owned this. But on the other hand, that race was just as guilty as we because the Red Indians, the Chippewas, and the Seminoles, and the rest of them that roamed the North American continent, history tells us, once invaded and drove out a race that preceded them. So if we are thieves for taking it from the Indians, we only took it from thieves who had taken it from others who were probably thieves in turn. And when you go to the map of Europe and look at it, you will see how men are arguing and fighting for their borders, those flexible and changing borders. And yet I long ago threw up my hands and said, My God, I'll never be able to decide what nation owns what land over there. Because if you go back far enough in history, you'll find that they got it by invasion, by massacre, by murder. And then they had squatters right on it, forgetting that they got it and the only payment they made was the blood of the people that owned it. So, there isn't anything in the world that isn't defiled. Injustice and oppression runs through everything. And it is this that gives the vile, devil-possessed communist the one lone weapon that he has. No man can think less of the communist than I. No man can be revolted as though it were some bottomless pit had been loosed and the locusts had come out and called themselves communists. That's what I think of the whole thing. But I also know that all they say about us is not lies. I also know that that charming and beautiful hotel on the North Shore that raises its gracefully wrought story one above another into whose elegant corridors there come and go the rich and the great and the learned and the Celebrity. I know it's kept that way, but poor tired old women with mop buckets who go up and down the halls, weary, defeated ladies who for repentance make the beds and mop up the hall. So I say that while the devil invented communism, we sinners tossed them weapons to cut our own heads off with. There isn't any treasure, probably, that isn't defiled. I suppose you drive up the coast, Florida or New England, and you see a, a yacht lying at anchor there, all floating gracefully over the broad bosom of the deep. And you say how beautiful, and wish secretly that you had one, or in a bracket where you could have one. 
You knew how much of iniquity there was brought into that graceful thing. You'd never want it. And I can only repeat again the saying of Emerson. Young man, said Emerson, you want to be president? You want to go to the White House? Ah, if you only knew how much of his manhood he had to sell out to get there, you wouldn't want it. If you only knew how he must obey those who stand erect behind the throne and tell him what to do. This is no political comment, whether Democrat or Republican or Straddlers in office. It's true all over the world. Everything is defiled because everything flows out of the human breast and the human breast is defiled. You cannot get pure water out of a defiled fountain. You cannot pluck sweet figs off of a thorn tree. You cannot get sweet grapes off a wild grapevine. And you cannot get edible chicken eggs from a buzzard. And you cannot get pure treasures from impure hearts. I repeat, this is not a blanket indictment. I believe we have men and they're listening now, men listening to me, who would scornfully turn their back on anything that wasn't honest and fair. I do not go along with those that hold that every businessman is a crook. I don't believe it. I believe it entirely possible to live a clean, upright life. A man may not have as big an income, but I believe it's entirely possible to live right and be in the business world. But the very money that flows into your hand and out again, however honest it may be, as far as you're concerned, I repeat, may have bought the hired killer for the hired hope. So everything in this world is undefiled. But our inheritance is pure and unsought. And that which the redeeming God has given to his redeemed children has no trace anywhere of defilement upon it. You can trace it back to the roots of its beginnings. Because it flowed out of the pure and defiled heart of Jesus Christ, it is undefiled as he. And incidentally, that word undefiled is used to describe the Savior too. It says he is holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners and higher than the highest heaven. And the treasure he gives to his children is a treasure as undefiled as the heart of the one who prepared it. Then there is the word faded, not away, unfading. Now I ask you if unfading describes anything in this world. I do not know of anything in this world that the word unfading could describe really, particularly any treasure that you may have. Marries her today in her blushing womanhood, beautiful to see, but in ten years she begins that process they call fading. And then she scrambles off to Woolworths and to Walgreens and to Steinways. It wasn't for Men like me who were supposed to have ulcers and women like you who were fading, Steinways had run out of business. I had to get pills for my ulcers and you to get uh, something to prop up your fading beauty. But everything fades. Everything fades. In this wide world, old letters fade, old books, old things. 
with great difficulty they're restored. With another generation or two, they'll have to be restored again, and each restoration means faith. So everything, no matter what it is, fades in this world. You cannot use the word unfading to describe anything earthly. The Bible tells us that we are like the flower of the field, the faith. Today it is, and tomorrow it is cut down and withered and is gone. And the bouquet that costs the young swain, lovesick and sighing like furnace, $15 on Saturday night, Wednesday noon, will be thrown out to be carried away Thursday morning by the man with the big yellow egg. Everything fades, and we're like it. Fading beauty, fading treasures, fading values. I believe that God's people have an inheritance which is incorruptible and undefiled, and that faded not away, which can be said about that inheritance, but can be said about no other inheritance in the world. Now, it says that this inheritance, this unincorruptible, undefiled, and unfading inheritance, is reserved in heaven for you. Well, I've been thinking this week that heaven is a place. One is almost startled when he comes to think about heaven and how little anybody believes in heaven anymore. Either a hillbilly with a guitar sings about heaven in a way that would make any intelligent man wish he'd never seen such a heaven, or else we don't think about heaven at all. The corrosive action of unbelief has worn down our belief. And heaven and the belief of the things in heaven, the inheritance that is ours, laid up in heaven for us, it's almost gone. You see, two men have partly, uh, men, I think, responsible for that. One was Copernicus. <laughs> there was a day when men were geocentric in their thinking. They said, the earth, the earth, that's everything. The earth is the center of everything. God made the earth and put it here. And everything else revolves around it, flies over it, goes around, goes above it, goes over it. And it's solid, it's fixed. God nailed it down and established the foundation thereof. And there's nothing can change that. The earth does stand still. And then along came Copernicus, and at the risk of his life, went on to prove that wasn't so at all. The earth isn't nailed down any place. The earth isn't frozen fast nor stuck fast. The earth moves, and the sun stands still. Yes, no. The sun only seems to stand still in relation to the earth's motion. The sun, in fact, moves in a wider orbit, vaster, limitless orbit, limitless orbit out yonder through the vast, vast spaces. So that filtered down from the scientists into the colleges, from the colleges into the high schools, from the high schools into the great schools, and from the great schools onto the street. And everybody knows it now. And so everybody is saying, now what about this heaven idea? What about heaven? There was a day when heaven was right up there, and the stars were the peepholes of heaven, and you could look up and see the bit of the light of the glory that never was on land to sea, looking down through the peepholes of heaven. What about it now? And so we laughed it off, but it got hold of us, and it acted like a corrosive acid to wear down our belief in heaven. And the second man that came along was the man Einstein, 
with his relativity. Now, relativity is true. It must be true. There isn't anything in the Bible that says that it isn't. But uh, he, not only, he not only took the earth out. He took the sun and the stars and the, 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 the everything out. And said so there isn't anything that's fixed any place. Nothing standing still. Everything is in motion. It wasn't exactly a new idea. All the creatures had said the same thing for Christ's time. But he said everything is in motion. And everything is only in relation to something else. So there isn't anything against which you can measure something and say, that's it. He says, no, that isn't it. That's only it in comparison with something else. Find that other it. And say, that is it in comparison with it. Then when you get to it number two, you don't say, ah, now we've got something nailed down, something fast against which we can figure everything, because it number two also is only what it is relatively and in comparison with it number three. So we go on in that infinitum world without end, and there isn't any place fixed. Oh, I don't know, after I read that kind of stuff, I like to say, oh, rest my long divided heart, fixed on this blissful center rest. There is a place where neither Einstein nor Copernicus troubles and the wicked are dressed. And it is the heart of God who made all these flying balls and these worlds within worlds. There is one we call God. And yet I say that the idea of relativity and uh, of the motions of the heavenly bodies has helped to destroy faith in heaven as a place. I don't see why it should. If God could create an earth and put a race on it, why couldn't he create something else and put a redeemed race on it? You know, I don't have to trouble some people. Thank God for a small mind and uh, an untroubled intellect. What worries others doesn't worry me. I believe that if God could make the earth and put a race like us on it, he could make another place and call it heaven and make a, put a race on it that has been redeemed. We are redeemed. That's very simple for me. So Copernicus and Einstein can lie down with their fathers, and they won't bother me at all, but it is, it has taken away the idea of heaven from many, many people. We try to make heaven as another, another plane, you say it's another dimension. You say heaven's another dimension. Others say that heaven is a state of mind. And we get rid of heaven, the whole thing is simply the artful dodging of unbelief. I believe that there is an inheritance laid up, incorruptible and undefiled, that fate is not away, reserved in heaven for God's children. And when God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'll look around you now, get up on this high mountain, if you can take a look around, all this is to be yours and your children after you. Abraham could have taken out a notebook and written in Arabic or whatever Abraham used. This is mine and my children for inheritance. And along comes the relativists and the rest of them and say, now just a minute, Abraham, don't you realize that Palestine isn't anything fixed? It's just what it is in relation to something else. And that something else is what it is in relation to something else. Don't imagine that Palestine is a place. Don't think crudely like that. And, and basically, think spiritually. Palestine is just a state of mind. Abraham said, you can't talk to me, friend. You may have 
better education than I, but I have heard God say to Abraham, this inheritance is thine. Put a stake down from Lebanon to the great sea and from the Mediterranean to, to the river Euphrates. It's all yours. You can locate that on the map. And Abraham, see true to the word of God, went in there and took over and lived for hundreds of years with a mailing address. You could locate them. It was a place. God had given them an inheritance. And so all these gas-brained dreamers that tell us that heaven is not a place, it's a state of mind. Let them go climb a pole. I still believe that the God who made the earth and put a people upon it can make heaven and put a redeemed people in it. Do you? Why does it say we have an inheritance? And not the inheritance, but we are kept by the power of God through faith. Why, it would be unthinkable if our inheritance was incorruptible and we corrupted, wouldn't it? It would be unthinkable if our treasure was unfading and we faded. It would be unthinkable if our treasure outlasted us. And God found himself in the embarrassing position of preparing an unfading treasure for a people that he couldn't keep to enjoy. Is God going to allow himself to preserve an inheritance for a people that he can't preserve? Never, never while the world stands. Ye are kept by the power of God through faith unto an inheritance reserved in heaven for you. So there we are, friends. Once more I repeat, we Christians are not only rich, we Christians are, are nobly rich, soundly rich, Rich with riches that we need not apologize for. Rich with riches that we need never fear came to us through defiled hands. Never any corruption. Never any worm to make the tree of life fade. We're rich people. I wonder when we begin to act like it. Instead of acting like the poverty-stricken creatures that crawl around the earth and ask whether we can't please call under a leaf and be not seen. Let's let the world know how rich we are. Let's help unto an inheritance. What are you doing there, Junior? I'm a converted Christian. Just gave my heart to God. What are you going to do? Well, he immediately thinks, oh, I'll go to Nyack and movies. Whether you go to Nyack and movies doesn't mean this or that. The big thing is, you're now begotten unto an inheritance, incorruptible and undefiled, Reserved in heaven for you, and you are being kept for the power of God to the enjoyment of that inheritance. So that, that's what you're saved for, brother. And whether you go to Moody, Nyack, Wheaton, or where, it makes a little difference. God will guide you in that. I believe that. But that isn't the big thing. Say, uh, you want to go into the work. You're in the work as soon as you're born, brother. You're going to go into the full-time work? You're in full-time work as soon as you're born into the kingdom of God. Cultivating the riches of his, your inheritance and of God's inheritance in the saints. Telling the story. Letting the world know how rich you are. And telling them where you got it and how you got it. That's the business of a Christian. May God help us to go to work at that just as soon as we get up from the altar. 
This sermon by A.W. Tozer is provided courtesy of the archives of the Christian and Missionary Alliance. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.